Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast, and we've got breaking news. Wednesday morning, we're doing the show, and it seems like the Titans and the Steelers game has been postponed from Sunday. What are you hearing, Ed? What are the reports out there? Will this game get pushed back a couple of days? Well, I, I could see two scenarios playing out. Uh, one is that I think if things clear up quickly, then I could see the game being played on Monday or Tuesday, maybe a, two Monday night games or something like that. That's if this clears up quickly and it's not as bad as we thought. To me, seeing that there's three position groups that are represented in this, I could see this being a much bigger outbreak. In that case, what I think the Titans will do is maybe play this game. I think you could you could move maybe Ravens Steelers up a week uh, from week eight to week seven, and then you could make you could put this game the the Titans and the Steelers game. You know, both of them could play on week eight. So th- this this could this could be moved around and shuffled so that you know this game could get in uh, for the season, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is kind of unexpected. This is kind of an unexpected buy, and this isn't good for either team. Three Titans players have been tested, and uh, they're found to have positive for for COVID, and five personnel people as well. And I want to remind our listeners that the Tennessee Titans played the Vikings on Sunday, so the Vikings also closed down their facility. They're also doing some testing because. You don't know. I mean, what's going to happen with that? The Vikings will play the Texans this weekend. So it impacts two games. This is only the Tennessee Titans against the Steelers. It's the Vikings against the Texans possibly as well. Let's talk about the Monday night game. Monday night game, the Ravens were a hot team. The defense was playing well. Lamar Jackson was once again riding, you know, high horse. And everybody was picking the Ravens, and they were the favorites in that game. Well, you know what? The Chiefs showed everyone they're still the Super Bowl champions. I I think the Chiefs are, are, you know, definitely the best team, probably the best team in the NFL right now. I mean, mean, can you you think of another team that challenges the Chiefs like the Ravens? And And the Ravens didn't even really challenge the Chiefs. So I, I think I think this is going to be pretty smooth sailing for the Chiefs going forward. I mean, they've got Patrick Mahomes. They've got that edge rush. They've got, you know, not a great defense, but an edge rush that can that can contain and can can put some pressure and keep, you know, keep, you know, get 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 off the field enough that Patrick Mahomes can put up big numbers and so yeah, this Chiefs team I mean, they they've got a handful of players, but that handful of players and carrying this team and I, I I just I want to make one bold take on all this. I I just the way things are headed, the way Patrick Mahomes is playing, where he is in his career, I could see a scenario where where Mahomes has a comparable career as far as accomplishments to someone like Tom Brady. Is that is that totally out there? Is that too early to say? But I I just just the way Mahomes is dominating, the way this team's set up, I, I just I just see, you know, you know, Andy Reid if he can if he can stay healthy, you know, what what what's stopping this this Chiefs team from winning five or six Super Bowls? Before we get to that, uh, according to Bovada Sportsbook, uh, they've got the Chiefs over the Patriots this weekend. Uh, they've got the Chiefs minus seven point favorites at home. 
Again, not a surprise, especially after that dominant performance against the Ravens. A lot of things, let's get back to Mahomes, a lot of things need to fall into place. Can the Chiefs field a competitive enough team around Patrick Mahomes knowing that you've paid a few people? I mean, I'm talking about Travis Kelsey. I'm talking about Chris Jones. And they gave Patrick Mahomes a half a billion dollars. That's probably the question mark. Can they field a competitive enough team? Uh, This isn't only about Patrick Mahomes. Can they keep that core? Uh, They obviously drafted Edward Zelayer, that running back. They've got Nico Hardman, who who looks like a good deep threat and and could certainly help in the receiving core. But that's probably my major question mark. It's, It's tougher nowadays to have that dynasty just because players leave when you have to pay them, and I just that—that's probably the question mark that it comes down to. Right now, the Chiefs look like the favorites to repeat once again, especially because we didn't have any OTAs. You know, we had a short training camp, and, and teams that had experience coming into this year were probably the ones that were going to get back in the playoffs once again. Especially if you've got a familiar offensive and defensive scheme. You know, the one thing that really surprised me is that the Ravens didn't run the football. Like, this is what this team is built on. This isn't about Lamar Jackson running the football. I'm talking about the the three-headed monster that they have there. You know, they've got Ingram. They've got J.K. Dobbins. They've got Gus Edwards. Why not run the football? Why not keep Patrick Mahomes on the sideline? You don't want to get into this shootout with the Kansas City Chiefs because you're going to lose. This isn't what it's all about. You need to slow the game down and keep him on the sidelines and keep your offense there. And another thing that kind of let Lamar Jackson down, the drops. I mean, his wide receivers certainly didn't help him at all. I mean, they had five drops on Monday night. Lamar Jackson wasn't perfect. He had an off night, but those wide receivers certainly didn't do him any favors. I mean, I, I think this, I, I couldn't agree more just with your, your philosophy of just running the ball and, you know, having the Ravens try to control the ball and keep Patrick Mahomes off the field. I think, I think that would have been a much better strategy to go with it. I mean, I think, I think the Ravens kind of like to have that shock factor with Lamar Jackson, you know, just that Lamar Jackson, you know, let, letting him use that sort of dual threat ability. Um, I think, I think they really, they really like to make their offense about Lamar Jackson and, the fact that you know they they had to adjust and make it about you know you know maybe running the ball to J.K. Dobbins or something like that kind of shows maybe that the, this this offensive coordinator needs to needs to needs to prepare his team better. I think they do. Look, they have a good defense. They have improved. They brought in Calais Campbell. They have Marcus Peters. They need to control the clock. They can still score. It just makes them a lot more dangerous if if you can have that option of whether the running back is hitting that hole or whether Lamar Jackson is hitting that hole. And obviously to have that threat. The Ravens can't forget that they're still a running team first. Even though Lamar Jackson has exceeded his expectations as far as what he's able to do through the air and he has exceeded everyone's expectations even people that were on his bandwagon come draft time and there weren't many of them to be honest with you but people that believed in him never thought that he was gonna have this start to his career that he was gonna win the MVP in his second year in the league 
But the Ravens can't forget what got them there last year, why they went 14-2. and two. You can't get into this slugfest, especially with the Kansas City Chiefs. You're still going to get your points. Just control the clock. You've got some explosive playmakers on the outside with Marquise Brown. You've got the guy up the seam with Mark Edwards, who's been solid. And I just feel like the Ravens can't go away from that. It makes them so much more dangerous when Lamar Jackson can drop back and have those play-action passes. And he can pull the defense in, and, and they can hit some things. After that Monday night game, it's very clear to everyone, not only us, that the Chiefs are the best team in the NFL, and that if they stay healthy, nobody is going to stop them. Ed, that's true. I mean, I, I one of the things though that I want to I want to say though is that I mean, if this game was in December, would would it have would it have changed the outcome? I mean, maybe you know in December when you know both teams want to run the ball and. Um, you know, team. You know, teams can't really air it out. I mean, does the fact that this was paid in you know sort of September and when the weather's still hot? I mean, does that does that kind of play into the Chiefs' hands in this game? I think it did to a point, but I don't think it impacts uh, Patrick Mahomes just with his arm strength. I mean, he can still throw through a blizzard. Ed, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, the guy has got one of the strongest arms maybe ever. I mean, this guy, he can, you can have snow, you can have rain, you can have a blizzard. Patrick Mahomes is still going to be throwing you know, bullets, you know, 50 yards down the field to, to Tyreek Hill. And remember, Edward Zelayer is only going to get better. Because what we saw during the first game, that was his first game in the NFL. He's still a rookie. So this guy is going to get stronger. This guy is going to get better in terms of his vision and in terms of knowing NFL defenses and in terms of hitting the hole so I think it, it works both ways I mean they'll trust Edward Zelayer even more come December come January unless there's going to be an injury and I, I don't I don't wish that upon anybody the Chiefs look like the, the definite favorites and I saw a lot of people jumping on the Ravens bandwagon because they were playing so well I mean, Lamar Jackson looked like Lamar Jackson from last year, and the defense was playing so much better, but they didn't have any answers for the Kansas City Chiefs. All right, we're joined by Manny Navarro. He covers the Miami Hurricanes for The Athletic. Manny, how are you? Doing great. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been a fun uh, sports season so far here in South Florida. we got the Heat in the finals. we got the Martins in the playoffs. These Hurricanes that I cover are doing pretty good, too. We all remember the glory days, Manny. You know, Jimmy Johnson, Butch Davis. Are the Hurricanes back? You know, it's funny. Everybody wants to know when they're back. Uh, I, I think they're back once they actually get to the college football playoffs and, and, and actually win the ACC, which has not happened in all the time that they've uh, that they've been here. I think the standard for, for Miami Hurricanes excellence is what you saw in uh, late 80s, early 90s, and, and then again right at, at the beginning of the 2000s with, uh, with that group that they had. It's probably one of the greatest teams of all time. I, I just think... Miami fans are dying to be back. It's just not going to happen until uh, they get to the level where they're producing the kind of players that uh, you saw during their glory days. What do you attribute to this year's turnaround? Well, I think a lot of it is the King. I think a lot of it is Rhett Lashley. You know, Manny Diaz has ventured into the transfer portal quite a bit since he's been the head coach here and trying to patch up holes. And I think he's done an excellent job, uh, especially this past offseason, getting a kicker getting a right tackle that you needed, getting a couple of defensive ends uh, over the last two years, two guys that are not starters for you. 
kind of done it the unconventional route because I think most college coaches prefer to just recruit guys, groom them. But uh, Miami was in a sort of precarious position in a lot of spots. And then to go out and get Aaron King, who I think is one of the better college quarterbacks uh, that Miami's had, oof, I want to say in two decades. I mean, just from a talent perspective and threat ability, I think that really puts them on a different level. And, and so it's, it's happened quickly. It's happened because of the transfer portal. But I, I think – Derek King is really the difference uh, this year. You have a trigger man that you have confidence in, a guy who can uh, create uh, a lot of issues for the defense, and I think early on that's what you've seen. You've seen defenses sort of worry about his ability to run with the football and then test them, try to make them throw, and he's made the throw so far. If you were to say, like, what, what difference does he make for this team? Well, I think from a leadership perspective, it's, it's been huge. He's a very focused um, individual, guy who, you know, Grad transfer, obviously 23 years old. He's older than three years older than Tyler Hero, who's helping that he get to the NBA Finals. I mean, he's he is a very mature individual, a guy who's a good leader. And I think you know that position, the quarterback position, was a real area of weakness uh, in the past couple of years, especially from a leadership perspective. You just didn't have the kind of uh, authority there that you needed. And I think he's he's helped you know settle down a lot of guys on the offensive side of the ball. He's motivated them to to play better because he needs them to play better. He, he's really interested in, in becoming a, an NFL quarterback. And I think, you know, he's kind of like come in there and immediately just sort of set the tone for what's needed and, and told guys, hey, I'm serious about this. I want to make it to the NFL. I want to be a guy who can play at the next level. And I got to prove it here at Miami. Um, and, and so I think he's got some guys that are, that are following his lead. Manny, you mentioned it briefly that offensive coordinator Rhett Lashley had a lot of success. He had a lot of success at SMU before coming here, but it seems like he's pushing all the right buttons. I mean, this offense just looks different. Are you surprised how fast they've clicked, considering that they didn't have spring practice, That just like everybody else? Are you surprised how quickly they've, they've gelled as an offense? Yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly the, the change in scheme and the hurry-up style offense that they're running has helped them out, especially in the offensive line. Um, you, know, you look at that unit last year, they were 51 sacks, was uh, second, I think second most in the country or third most in the country and most of them are power five schools. And, you know, Manny Diaz knew from the get-go that if you are going to change things, you had to change the scheme, uh, you know, and, and I think he's done that. Um by going with Rhett Lashley and playing at a faster pace, I think it's created a lot of problems for some of the teams that they're facing. Remember, they're not the only team that didn't have spring practice. Everybody else uh, pretty much did neither. And I think conditioning has, has been an issue maybe for some teams, you know, getting kids back, uh, playing at a high level and performing at a high level. And when you play fast, you know, it's a challenge, especially for a defense. And so I think they've covered up some of their, their warts by doing that. And I think also just, uh, the play calling, getting the ball quickly out of the hands of, of uh, Deere King and, and setting up plays where, you know, the defense sort of gets lulled to sleep because they're lining up in the same formations, running some of the same patterns, but it's got two and three and four different variations. I think, you know, you really saw that, that sort of come to fruition against Louisville, you know, in the, in the win where you had guys wide open or, or just running down the field, you know, with nobody around them really shows you how Rick just does a phenomenal job of setting up opponents with, with what he calls um, and waiting for the right moment to sort of land the uppercut. Uh, I think he's he's a good play caller, great play, play caller, and, you know, he's definitely, I think with the, hope, with the help of Garen Justice, the new offensive line coach, I think the two of them have, have worked wonders uh, with this offense. 
tight end Brevin Jordan uh, was a top tight end in his class a couple of years ago. He has certainly flashed in the first two seasons, but he's finally living up to his status this year. He's been featured through the first three games. He's the go-to guy there on offense. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think, you know, you look at the, the Miami's receiver position, and there really isn't a guy who has emerged as, as a go-to guy at that spot. And so Brevin, I think, naturally, because of his gifts, what he can do, not just catching the ball down the field, but, you know, sort of giving, giving the ball through the line of scrimmage where they, they run these short little patterns and they get the ball in his hands and they just say, all right, big guy, go go do your thing. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you've seen it where uh, he just creates plays, he moves the chains, he gets the first downs, and he's really being featured in this offense. I think Red's done a phenomenal job since the first half of the UAB game where really Revan was nowhere to be seen. Finally sort of reappeared in the third quarter of that game. You're like, okay, this is the Brevin Jordan I remember. And, and yeah, he's, he's been phenomenal. I think the one thing you hear the coaches talk about quite a bit at Miami is how much he's improved as a pass blocker. That's not something that most tight ends really learn how to do at the high school level. And I think Brevin has, has improved that part of his game quite a bit. I think he, he's also uh, improved his run, run blocking skills. That's something the coaching staff talked about a lot last year. I think he's become much more of a complete tight end and an NFL tight end for sure. How does a kid from Texas wind up all the way in Miami? <laughs> uh, well, I'm assuming you're talking about Derek King. Um, Derek, uh, really, I think his relationship with Rhett Lashley, just knowing, you know, playing against him uh, when he was at SMU and, and being in Texas, you know, Rhett's recruited that area a long time. I'm sure he's probably crossed paths with Derek before. But if you were talking about Brevin Jordan from Las Vegas, how does it get from Las Vegas and to Miami? I think, um, you know, with, with regard to him, Miami's just done a good job. Uh, with their staff, Stephen Field, the tight ends coach, has worked in a lot of different places. In Louisville, he's in Oregon, out on the West Coast. So he's got a lot of great relationships. And I think, you know, as far as tight ends are concerned, Miami's history, uh, so many great guys they put in the NFL. It's kind of an easy position to recruit because people look at Miami and they know that the tight end's going to be featured. They know that it's the offense there. They're, they're going to continue to produce high, high-end players. And so, I think that's a big reason why Brevin came to Miami because he knows the history, and I think he felt comfortable with uh, the tight ends coach, Stephen Field. Could you kind of overall rate the Hurricanes receiver core? Yeah. You know, I think Mike Harley is kind of the guy that that, that they trust the most. He's the senior. He's kind of more of their slot guy. You know, I think he's had some issues this year. He dropped a touchdown pass at at Louisville. Um, You know, but he's he's kind of the guy that, that I think the coaching staff has the most confidence in because he's a, he's a leader in the in the receiver room. Um, but as far as talent and what they've got, I mean, Mark Pope and D. Wiggins are the two guys that I think, as far as upperclassmen are concerned, those are the two guys that they looked at and were hoping would have a huge year this year. You know, they've tried to get the ball in Mark Pope's hands quite a bit. I think he's been targeted 18 times. He's got 10 catches for 139 yards. Has yet to really have that explosive game, but. He was a guy coming out of high school that they were really, really excited about. Some services, I think, had him as a five-star. And, you know, I've yet to really see that breakout moment. In fact, he's had two fumbles on punt returns in the first three games. So um, I don't know if he's just nervous. I don't know if he's just feeling the pressure to deliver or what. But he has yet to really deliver in my eyes. And then D. Wiggins, you know, he he scored on the 40-yard touchdown pass this past week against Florida State. Um, 
Uh, he's a bigger guy. He's about 6'3", 200 pounds. He's their bigger receiver out there, uh, a guy who can, who can run pretty fast. He's one of the fastest receivers they've got. But, again, he creating the separation, delivering, catching the ball downfield, I, I, I got to see more consistency out of him. I think receivers, the one position that you look at on this Miami team and think, man, they got so many great receivers in their backyard. They should always be elite. But I think a lot of other schools, Alabama in particular, Clemson, Ohio State, they've come down here to South Florida and I think recruited really well the wide receiver position. They've taken the top wide receiver out of here most years. So I think Miami, um, you know, those guys, uh, Harley, Pope, um, and Wiggins are all South Florida guys, but they weren't the number one guys in their class. Uh, they were, they were, you know, a shade or two below that. And I think if Manny Diaz is really going to turn things around here, he's got to start landing the best receivers in, the, in his backyard. Manny Navarro is with us. He he covers the Miami Hurricanes for the Athletic. I want to ask you about the running back because it's another position that has such a huge history with the Hurricanes. And I'm looking at Cameron Harris. Is he the next great running back to come out of the U? Well, I think he certainly elevated his game from where it was a year ago. I think Cam really hit the weight room hard. He put on about 10 pounds of muscle. And you're seeing a burst now that maybe you didn't see last year. He's actually outrunning guys. I think the, the impressive touchdown run that he had at Louisville, some of those Louisville DBs are fast fast guys themselves. They had an angle on him, and yet Cameron still sort of, beat them to the punch, got in the end zone. And I'm, I'm not sure if he does that a year ago. I think it's really been his dedication in the weight room and focus on, on taking his game to the next level that's helped him out. Um, you know, the two guys that are behind him that are freshmen, Donald Cheney Jr. and Jalen Knighton, I think both of those guys have more long-term upside than Cameron. Um, as much as I like Cameron, I, I just think the other two guys are a little bit more special. But Cam has really uh, elevated his game. And I think now... You know, Miami's had a few running backs drafted the last few years. Obviously, uh, DJ Dallas, Travis Homer, both up in Seattle, but they were sort of late-round picks. I don't know that Cameron, in my eyes, rises to first-round, second-round material, but I think he could certainly be the same thing that DJ Dallas and Travis Homer were, where they're a later-round guy who I think an NFL team looks at and says, man, he really had a great junior year at Miami. He's productive. He can. He, he's got the burst that you need. I think he's got some of those ingredients in him. It's just a matter of consistency. You know, he, he at times last year he went down on tackles that you're just like, wow. You know, Miami back shouldn't do that. I think this year he's starting to prove that he can get away from guys and, and do it a little bit better than he was doing a year ago. You talked about transfers. Um, can you tell me about Quincy Roche and you know how 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 big is it that he decided to transfer to Miami? I mean, it's huge. I mean, nobody knew what was going to happen with Gregory Rousseau, that he was going to opt out and, and sit out the season. Um, I think the feeling at Miami was you're going to get your best guy back and he's going to lead your defense. And so, you know, it's pivotal that, that Miami went out and, and got Quincy. Um, I think he's done a phenomenal job so far uh, this season, getting to, the, getting to the quarterback, creating pressures, um, which is really what you want now in college football since teams are getting the ball out so quickly you still want to be able to create pressure and he's done that um through these first three games um you know i think i think also having Jalen phillips around i mentioned one of the transfers earlier um, he him and the, both of those guys your starting defensive ends i think together they really create a lot of issues for teams Jalen, you know the coaching staff has raved about him he's 6'5 270 you know, former number one overall uh, recruit in the country back in 2017 when he signed with UCLA. And so 
he's got a lot of the ingredients you want. He just it's, it's always been about his health, some concussion issues that he had in the past. So, but I think they complement each other really well. I think Quincy's a smaller, sleeker guy compared to Jalen, but uh, Quincy's effective. And I think you, you've seen him now. I mean, it's one thing to do it at Temple, right? And and against that level of competition, it's another thing to come up to the Power Five and do that consistently. And I think he's proving. Uh, what he wants to prove to NFL scouts and to, and to NFL personnel that, hey, I can do it at a higher level. Um, and so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how the season progresses. But I, I think um, both of those guys have a shot to play in the league for sure. Well, we definitely knew about D.R. King. We knew about Quincy Roche, Brevin Jordan. But I didn't know much about Bubba Bolden. Who is this guy? But through the first three games – you could say that he's had a bigger impact than anybody on that defensive side of the ball. He really has. He's played really, really well. And, you know, Bubba's a guy who went to high school with Brevin out there in Las Vegas, uh, Bishop Gorman. And part of the reason I think he came here was because of Brevin, you know, sort of telling him how great South Florida is. And, and so, you know, Bubba, you talk about Ed Reed, right? Everybody's like, oh, Ed Reed's on the sideline. What kind of impact does he have I think you look at Bubba Bolden and say that's the impact. You know, being able to be in a room where you can share some ideas. And Ed Reed has certainly done that. I think um, he's, I think he's helped Bubba grow mentally as a player. I thought this last game against Florida State, you know, he, he was all over the field creating plays, um, forced fumble, a bunch of open field tackles, and then a pick. And, and the play that impressed me the most really was when he broke on on a slant pattern came in, dove, and deflected the ball up in the air, and Al Blades was able to get a pick on it. And I thought just seeing him do, make make that kind of a play reminded me of Ed Reed because that's what Ed did. Ed, Ed didn't always come up with the pick, although he had a ton of them in his career. Ed just affected the play in so many different ways and creating deflections for his teammates or, you know, diving and making the open field tackle. He's really, I think Bubba, more than anybody else on his team right now, has, I think, helped his draft start. I think there's probably a lot of NFL scouts out there that are looking at Bubba Bolden and saying, man, where did this guy come from? And, you know, he transferred in from USC. He signed with USC out of high school, came in um, and, and had, to, had to wait, you know, to kind of get on the field, I think, for four or five games uh, because of when, he, when it was that he transferred. And so last year he gets in, he's able to play in four games, and then he hurts himself in the way at Florida State on an interception on sort of a freak play. And uh, so you didn't hear from Bubba the rest of last year, but certainly I know the coaching staff is excited about him. Uh, he's playing a lot more uh, than Gervin Hall, who was their starter and second leading tackler. And Gervin was a guy that everybody thought was was going to become a pretty good player here. But Bubba, I think, has just sort of stolen his thunder and come in and, and made a lot of plays that, that have opened some eyes. I don't know, Manny. When you look at his size, his athleticism, his speed, there's one name that comes to mind, but I hate to do this because there's only one. Sean Taylor, I mean, he just reminds you of a young Sean Taylor. It's <laughs> tough to throw that out there after like three games. You know, yeah. He only had like five or six games last year before that injury, but you see glimpses of it in terms of his instincts and what he brings and just the impact that he makes. Yeah, I think, you know, I, I, I having covered Sean, and, and I was actually with Sean at his draft date, uh, which tells you how old I am, 42 years old, I've been doing this a long time now, but I, I remember being with Sean at his draft day party and covering him in high school and, and then at Miami, and 
Sean was just so much more of a thumper and a hitter. I mean, I think from a playmaking perspective, I can totally see the comparison because Sean was that kind of guy. He, he was all over the field, the same way Bubba is. But I think he, Sean was certainly a bigger hitter than Bubba. I've yet to really see Bubba lay, lay the wood the way that the way that Sean has. But maybe he has it in him. Maybe that's the, the other aspect. But I, but I certainly think, I stand by my point, I, I certainly think having Ed Reed around, and obviously he's got his own position coach, and Ephraim Bandit, who I think is a very, very good coach. Um, but, I, again, you know, you talk about where does Ed Reed make an impact. I think he makes an impact every time he has a conversation with these guys in the hallway and tells them something new and, t- and gives them some insight. You see it on the sideline. I mean, he, he can't coach them by rule, but I think he's certainly allowed to have conversations with them when he's standing around them. So um, I think I think he's had a, a big impact on Bubba. Is, does he have, like, a consultant type of role? I mean, is Ed Reed thinking about coaching at Miami next year? Is this kind of like a wait-and-see type of thing? What's Ed Reed thinking? I mean, is he thinking about coaching for the Miami Hurricanes officially next year? No, you know, I can't answer that because I, I don't know. I haven't spoken to Ed about it, but I can tell you his role is, is uh, chief of staff. That's what Manny has created, and, and so by rule – He's not allowed to coach. He is allowed to be on the sideline on game day. He does have conversations with guys. I think my understanding with Ed and this whole deal is he's got a lot of things going on in his life. I think he enjoys being around a program and sort of a consultant-type role uh, on his own terms. You know, to make that commitment to be a guy who recruits and goes on the road recruiting and you know to be a, a college assistant or a college coordinator – it takes a lot of work, and I think I'm not sure that Ed is totally invested in doing all that. I think he enjoys his role as chief of staff, which gives him the freedom to have an influence, but also I don't think it requires nearly the amount of time that being an assistant coach or coordinator or head coach requires. When you look at the Hurricanes right now, what is their one major weakness for this team that you still see that they need to get better at? Well, I think at linebacker, um, you know, People sort of took for granted, I think, what Shaq Quarterman and Michael, Michael Pinkney, two four-year starters, brought at that position. You know, those guys weren't always playing at, at, an, at an elite level, but I think certainly you look at what Miami was left with in regards to playing experience and, and, and guys that are impact-type players the way that Shaq and, and, and Pinkney were. I think, you know, right now, Zach McLeod, starting weak side linebacker, he's a guy who sort of the third linebacker uh, the last few years. And I think he stepped into that role and done a, a, a good job. I wouldn't say a great job, I'd say a good job. But the middle linebacker position with Bradley Jennings and Sam Brooks Jr., who's a sophomore. Um, Jennings, I think, has had one tackle each of the last two games. And I think most people, if you say, well, how many tackles should a middle linebacker get? I would think more than two in two games is what most people would say. And, and I don't know how much of that is, is Bradley just – He's coming back from an injury, a career-threatening injury. Um, he's adjusting to a new role, being a starter. But I, I, from a production standpoint, I just think he's not in some of the spots where you want him to be. And I think he's got to produce more than, than one tackle a game like he's done the last two games. And then, you know, Sam Brooks is a former pass rusher in high school, very, very good edge rusher. And now you're trying to teach him how to play middle linebacker. And he is learning the position and getting better at it. He led the team in tackles in the bowl game, but um, I still think there are times when he, the run fits and just isn't in the right place. And so that, to me, is the number one concern. Now, if it, it was 
offensive line and it was receiver, but I think we've seen early on that what Matt Lash is doing schematically and then also having Brevin Jordan around, both of those concerns in my eyes are not as big of a deal now as linebacker because I just think Louisville had a lot of success running the ball. Florida State in spurts had success running the ball. And I know coming up in this uh, this next game here against Clemson on October 10th, Miami's going to be in a bit of trouble at that linebacker spot because Travis Etienne is a beast, and bringing him down will not be easy. And so I'm a little worried about the linebacker spot. Manny, the big game is October 10th. Do you think this team has a shot to upset Clemson? They're going to have to play the perfect game. I mean, Clemson, Trevor Lawrence, what he does with the football in his hands is probably better than anybody else uh, at the college level in a while. And I know Joe Burrow had a tremendous season, but uh, this guy's done it for three years now and, and played at an elite level for three years. And I know Clemson's got a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, but you look at what, what Trevor's done, especially against the Blitz, what he's done when, when teams have put pressure on him, He's still a factor. He's, he doesn't make many mistakes, and so I look at Miami's defense and I say, "Well, how do they how do they win this game? How do they slow down Travis Etienne and stop Trevor Lawrence?" And I don't know that they have it in them. Um, as much as I like what Miami's done the last few years, this defense there's certain spots that concern me. Linebacker, as I mentioned, and, and then I would say even the second cornerback spot. I think Al Blades is very very good. Uh, he's a good number one cornerback, but I worry about DJ Ivy. I worry about Corey Couch and some of the guys in Miami secondary. You know, can they cover the way that they're supposed to cover it and, and make the kind of plays that you need them to make to keep you in a game against Clemson? Because Trevor Lawrence will carve you up and Travis Etienne will, will run the ball right down your throat. So I think that's going to be a huge challenge for Miami. And then I think on the other side of the ball, offensively, while Miami certainly improved the offensive line and, and they've got a, a great tight end and some good backs, I think the receiver position remains sort of that, that spot where, um, you know, where where do you get the production? Where do you get the consistency? That's a question that continues to, to remain out there. And, and to beat Clemson, you got it. To me, you got to be a great team like LSU was last year. They had everything that you needed to win a championship. I don't see Miami having everything that they need to beat Clemson. And so, right now, do I think it's possible? Yeah, I think it's possible. I think the other team can, has the has the ability to do some really special things, but I, you know, you're asking me for a pick. If you're asking me for a prediction, I, I would say Clemson would probably win that game. So let's speculate and say Miami beats Clemson. Do you think they could run the table the rest of the way? If they are able to beat Clemson, then yes, I think there's no doubt. Then they've then they've proven that you know some some of those issues that I have with their roster that they have what it takes. They have what it takes to beat Clemson. They certainly have what it takes to run the table in the ACC. You know, North Carolina, I would say, is probably their biggest challenger outside of Clemson at the end of the season. That last regular season game, I think Virginia Tech will not be an easy game for them. Having to win up at Blacksburg, it's never easy. So there there are some pitfalls or areas where Miami could stumble. But if they show up and they beat a very, 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 very good Clemson team and and they come out of that and you feel better about some of these issues, then yes, I think there's no question that they could run the table. Well, Manny, we appreciate you having you on the show. Can you uh, just tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Manny underscore Navarro, and you can also find my work at theathletic.com. Uh, I cover the Hurricanes. I also have a podcast, Wide Right, uh, that you can find on Apple Podcasts dedicated to Hurricanes coverage. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, guys. Bovada takes sports bettors closer to the action. It's fun, it's safe, and it's fast. It's sports betting made easy.
You know, I was watching college football last weekend. Everybody was watching it. You and I were watching it. And Florida game was, was the one that, that caught my eye. The Florida Gators were playing against the Old Miss Rebels. And Kyle Trask, the quarterback, had a very good game. He threw for over 400 yards, had six touchdowns. Everything was clicking for, for Florida in that game. But it was hard not to notice the tight end. Kyle Pitts, the junior tight end from Florida, he showed glimpses of it the first two years, and especially last year. Last year he came on and he had a good year. But this year, the man just looks different. He looks like he's on a mission. He looks like he's on a mission to be the highest drafted tight end in the NFL. I just I was really impressed with what he did, and I'm sure you were as well. Kyle Pitts had eight receptions for 170 yards, and he scored four touchdowns. The man looked unstoppable in the red zone, and it seemed like Kyle Trask was looking in his direction uh, almost every pass that, that he was throwing. Yeah, I mean, he, he had a great game, and I mean, they were really using him in the red zone. That was that was where he was really being used. And uh, what, what, what I really like about Kyle Pitts, though, is actually not so much what he does as much in the passing game as what he does in the run game. All right, talk about it. Talk about it because he has certainly, there's one thing that I saw on Saturday. This guy has certainly gotten stronger over the offseason in terms of his run blocking and pass blocking. He certainly gives a great effort in that department. Well, what I like about him is he's an aggressive blocker. I mean, we love we love the George Kittles, the, the, the aggressive blockers in this league. I think he's high effort. I think he's a high effort blocker. I think he has good feet when he's pass blocking. I mean, they use him on passing downs to, to, to pass block, which says something about his blocking. Um, what I like about him, too, is, is that I think, he, I think he understands the angles, you know, when run blocking. Like, he, he could fit, fit very well into, like, a zone running scheme for an NFL team. Just the way he uses angles to, to sort of angle and give the runner space to run. I think I think that's something to be you know to be excited about with Pitts, but I mean you know I, I'm not I'm not saying I'm not saying I don't like him in the passing game because I love him in the passing game. He definitely brings that dimension, and again during the first game especially, I saw a better effort from him than last year in terms of blocking, and I also thought that he was stronger. He was moving people, but in terms of what he does in the passing game, the guy is an exceptional athlete. I mean, this guy is going to test through the roof at the scouting combine. He's got great speed. He can beat linebackers in man coverage. He's too strong for safeties to handle. And I saw that in the old Miss game when the DB tried to come up and press coverage and Pitts was lined up on the outside and he was muscling him up. Well, Pitts kind of moved him out of the way. He used his hands and then gained inside leverage and, and caught a 17-yard reception. Um, that was that was pretty impressive. And then I also saw him split the double team. I mean, the way he high-pointed the ball on, on the reception in the fourth quarter. He high-pointed the ball. It was against double coverage. He showed his strong hands. I'm just really impressed. And then there was right out of, I think it was in the beginning of the third quarter, he just ran away from the linebacker. Trask audible to that play. He recognized that Pitts was matched up against a linebacker, and he just ran away from him. It was a catch-and-run play for, for a 71-yard touchdown. Just really impressed. I mean, the one question mark that I had about Pitts last year, he had a few drops. 
his concentration lapses. And there were times, there were certain games where you would just, he would have a couple of drops. Well, against Old Miss, he was, he showed reliable hands. And again, the speed, the athleticism is there. He's 6'6", 240 pounds. If he continues to block the way he blocked against Old Miss in the opening game, this guy is going to be a top 10 pick because a couple of years ago, we saw TJ Hawkinson go eighth overall to the Detroit Lions. Where do you see him? Because I'm really high on him. I, I know that guys like this always raise their profile. If he continues to dominate this way and with his athletic score and the speed that he's going to show, the sky is the limit for this guy. I just wanted to add the fact that he he's an excellent I mean, he, he's really a good route runner for a tight end, and I think that's so important to today's NFL. But I, I'm just going to say, I mean, I think we live in an era where tight ends just don't really get picked in the top 10. Like, you just you just have to really, like, have dominant production, dominant, uh, you know, tape, dominant, you know, interview, dominant everything to be picked where TJ Hawkinson was picked. That's why I, I think that maybe, you know, he's he's more in the 20s. This is maybe a guy who can fall just because he plays tight end. But this is a guy who's going to be an outstanding player in the league. Look, the NFL offenses are featuring tight ends more than ever. And when you have a chess piece, a guy that you can't defend because he has got the strength, he's got the speed, he's got the athleticism, and then he's got the production to match in the SEC... It's tough to keep this guy out of the top 10. I'm, I'm calling it right here. We're, we're taping at the end of September. Kyle Pitts is going to be a top 10 pick. He might be the highest drafted tight end ever. The highest drafted tight end before this was Vernon Davis. When he came out and he ran like a 4-4 in the low 4-4s at the scouting combine. He was a physical freak out of Maryland. He was the highest drafted tight end by the San Francisco 49ers at that time. I think Kyle Pitts is going to be up there because with the training that he's going to get, he's going to get up to like 248, 250. He's not going to lose speed or athleticism. I'm calling it right now. He's going to be a top 10 pick. He is, he is better than TJ Hawkinson. Hawkinson was a, more, a better blocker, but in today's NFL, you, you don't need to be a dominant blocker. When Evan Ingram, who can't block to save his life, gets drafted 23rd overall. When you have Noah Fant go 20th overall, Kyle Pitts is is higher than those guys as far as I'm concerned in my book. I hope he stays healthy, and like I said, the the sky's the limit. He's going to fight it out with Pat Fryermuth out of Penn State, but I do think that he's going to get the edge just because his his testing numbers are going to be through the roof. All right, let's continue with our theme as far as college football is concerned. The, the Sooners were playing against Kansas State on Saturday. They were at home. The one thing that was really surprising is that midway through the third quarter, Oklahoma had the lead. They had a comfortable lead, 28-7. to Turned it off. I went to a different game, and all of a sudden, like in the highlights, I'm getting 28-28. What happened all of a sudden? I mean, Kansas State just, just made a statement, and they just started running away from Oklahoma in, in the second half? Well, I, I think there's three things that made Oklahoma lose this game. One, you turn the ball over. They turned the ball over with Spencer Radler three times, three interceptions by Spencer Radler. Also, two, bad special teams at the end. 
But special teams, you have to be clean in your special teams to win games. If you want to run the table like an Oklahoma wants to to make the playoff, you have to play good special teams. They didn't play good special teams in this game. They had a blocked punt. That's going to kill you. And the third thing, the third thing is, is that when the situations arise, Oklahoma wasn't making the plays. And I, I think, I think really what it is is that this team just doesn't have the quarterback leadership that they've had in the past. I mean, Spencer Radler is a talent and he's good, but he just doesn't have the experience to lead this team. I mean, this is a team that's used to having Baker Mayfield and Kyler Murray. And, you know, Jalen Hurts, too. I mean, maybe he wasn't drafted as high as the other two, but he, he still was a great college quarterback. They just don't have that that sort of leader in the locker room that they've had in the past. And I think that's why this Oklahoma team just probably won't be as good as they've been in the past. And the Kansas State Wildcats just seem to have Oklahoma Sooners' number because this isn't the first time that they've beaten them. This is actually the second straight year in a row. Last year it was a Manhattan this year it was in Oklahoma. I agree with you. You know, there's also one thing hurting the Oklahoma Sooners. Kyla Murray and Jalen Hurts, they can run the ball. When things got tough, when those windows got tighter, those two quarterbacks could take off and, and run out of trouble and pick up the first down. That's not who Spencer Rattler is. Spencer Rattler is a is a pocket quarterback. He doesn't give you that dimension as a runner and I think it hurts Oklahoma in that way I also think like the Sooners are having the same defensive issues that they had last year but they had a better team a stronger team you don't have a C.D. Lamb anymore you don't have a Jalen Hurts and also you know we're blaming Spencer Rattler and he certainly threw those three interceptions that that hurt the Oklahoma Sooners but the offensive line Ed they have to play better that was the one thing that always Oklahoma Sooners offensive line always kept the pocket clean for Kyla Murray, for Jalen Hurts, for Baker Mayfield. That wasn't the case on Saturday. You know, just another thing that I, I just want to point out about the game, and it, it doesn't really have to do with the Oklahoma Sooners, but this guy Deuce Vaughn. I mean, Kansas State has is having you know an outbreak of coronavirus, and this this I think this guy's a freshman. His name is Deuce Vaughn. Uh, he caught four passes for 129 yards. I mean, he he is just he's just a slippery back, and uh, you know you know these these aren't you know these types of bat, scat backs aren't usually you know highly highly recruited, and they're usually not big names and stuff like that. But you know this this guy already looks like he could do something in the NFL. Give him you know two, three, four years in college football. When I saw the kid, I mean, he's listed at five five. And, you know, there was another running back that went to Kansas State that had a great NFL career. His name is Darren Sproles. It brought me back to that time. Shades of Darren Sproles when when I saw Deuce Vaughn because they're smaller guys, but they've got a thick lower body and and they've got good speed and they can break tackles. So I'm sure Deuce Vaughn will, will hear that comparison through the years as he continues to play for for Kansas State. Let's stick with the Big 12 because there could have been another upset. The Texas Longhorns, they were down by 15 points with three minutes left in the game. It looked like the Texas Tech Red Raiders were were going to close the game. That's it. They were going to they were going to run away with it. You know, they came back and it, it looked like they were going to 
they were going to beat the Texas Longhorns and two of the the best programs in the Big 12 were going to go down. Well, Sam Ellinger had something to do with it. And then they had that onside kick that that worked out for the Texas Longhorns that, that led them to overtime. Man, Texas escaped this. I mean, that's... There's no buts or ifs about it. I mean, for, for for saying for Texas to come back at that level to be back that far, I mean, there was there had to be some luck in it. But for just to say this, I mean, I just I, I really like this kid Sam Ellinger. I I think you know what I think he has a lot of tools for the NFL. He's probably not a guy who's gonna go day one or day two, but he's a guy who really really deserves a shot and a guy who really has the leadership ability to be a good NFL quarterback. I mean, you know, he I've seen him I've seen him have a good arm. I've seen him throw the ball accurately. He's had he's had a career. I mean, he's has plenty of starting experience at Texas. I mean, this is a guy who, you know, maybe it might be a nice like fourth or fifth round pick for a team. Uh, we'll see. He's got to get better as a passer. I still feel like he he stares down those targets and he relies on his legs a little too much, uh, kind of abandons those reads. If the first read isn't there, he's still going to take off. But I'm hoping I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see some maturation in this game. But he's certainly a leader. He's certainly a competitor. And this was one of the great comebacks in, in Texas history, as far as I'm concerned. Probably the greatest game that I saw Texas win was against USC in the national championship game when Vince Young ran it in for the touchdown at the end, and, and they beat Matt Leinart and Reggie Bush and that great team. But this is up there. Might not have that magnitude because it's not for the national championship, but that was pretty impressive. And ta- Texas walked away with the overtime win against Texas Tech with the 63-56 to 56 score. The Big 12 doesn't play defense, Ed. They just don't. Look, if I'm, like, if I'm a quarterback, I would want to play a, at a Big 12. I'm just going to put up huge numbers. You know, Mike Leach used to coach in the Big 12, and he was the head coach at Texas Tech. And then he he took the head coaching job at Washington State in the Pac-12. Well, he has resurfaced in the SEC. He's now the head coach of Mississippi State, and Mississippi State surprised everyone. I don't think anybody saw this coming in the opening weekend in the SEC they beat number six LSU. The defending national champions went down. The 16-game winning streak was snapped, and and Mike Leach just had their number, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, and KJ Costello played a great game, especially when the game was on the line. I mean, he threw for 600 yards, bunch of touchdown passes. I mean, he 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 really. I to be honest with you, I. I wasn't high on KJ Costello when he was at Stanford, but seeing what he does in Mike Leach's team, I, I really, I really think he he's 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 a he's a legitimate NFL quarterback. And you know what? If he plays like this and he beats teams like LSU, he will be a first round quarterback. Mike Leach always elevates quarterbacks that that play for him. I mean, Luke Falk was a draft pick. He was at the Senior Bowl. Ed Gardner Minshew was a sixth round pick. He's obviously been the most successful Mike Leach prodigy. He was at Washington State for only one year after transferring from East Carolina. We saw Anthony Gordon last year put up video game numbers. If KJ Costello keeps keeps doing this, he's certainly going to be at the Senior Bowl because he's got the size. He's got the raw arm talent. He is 
the most talented quarterback that Mike Leach has gotten his hands on through the years. And I'm confident in saying this because KJ Costello was was a big time recruit coming out. He was at Stanford before. He's got the size. You know, he's a classic pocket quarterback. He's got a very strong arm, and I think we saw glimpses of it. Mike Leach always makes his quarterbacks look a lot better than they actually are. And look at you. I mean, you're, you weren't high on him, but now you see him in, in Mike Leach's offense for one game, and you're like, man, this guy's going to be a first-round pick. You know, I mean, there, there are some questions I have about KJ Costello, for sure. I mean... When you talk about when you talk about I mean he's hot and cold when it comes to accuracy. I mean he can be he can be real real accurate, you know, have great plot placement and then he can have terrible accuracy. I mean that's that's the truth about him, but I just to be honest with you the way the way he plays with the game on the line was what, you know, the guy the, the guy rose to the occasion and I think that's, you know, if if a guy can win a close game for me, I mean that's that's something to consider in the draft process. In an air raid offense, you're going to throw picks because you're throwing 60 passes a game. You know, obviously, you're, you're going to make mistakes. Everybody is human, and we've seen this before with air raid quarterbacks. They put up huge numbers. They throw for a ton of yards and touchdowns, but they also throw picks. But the one thing that K.J. Costello needs to clean up is his decision-making because <clears throat> when Mississippi State had the lead in the fourth quarter, he got careless. He threw a pick. He fumbled the ball, and that's one thing that he's got to take care of because against a very talented LSU team, they forgave him. But against an Alabama team, he's going to need to raise his level of play. He needs to make better decisions, especially with the game on the line. I don't think Mike Leach cares if you throw a pick in the first quarter because he knows that they're going to march you know, in two or three minutes, 80 yards downfield and, and score another touchdown. But if you have those turnovers at the end of the game in the fourth quarter, he definitely cares. And that, that's something K.J. Costello needs to, to clean up and get better at. You know who he reminds me of? I'll tell you. Zach Mettenberger. Zach Mettenberger played for LSU Tigers. He was a quarterback there. And I just think that they're similar. They're similar in terms of their stature. They're, they're similar in terms of their arm talent. The only thing is Costello is going to put up video game numbers this year. And yeah, we're going to see him in Mobile, Alabama. I, I have no doubts about it. The numbers are going to speak for themselves. This week, Bovada has Alabama versus Texas A&M. And they've got the Alabama Crimson Tide minus 17.5 point favorites in this game. Does Texas A&M even have a shot in this game against Alabama, Ed? Kellen Mond didn't look that good against Vanderbilt. I think Texas A&M only scored like 17 points against the worst team in the SEC. And now they're going to face off against Alabama. Do they have a shot? I, I really don't see this being a good game for Texas A&M. I mean, we remember the, the, when they played last year and, you know, one of the Texas A&M players was just mouthing off and... It was it was just it was just a you know it, they didn't show up against them you know Alabama got angry and they showed up against them. Uh, Alabama is a superior team here. They have the best roster in college football. Maybe not the best quarterback in college football, but definitely the best all around roster in college football. They are going to be contenders for the national championship. I could very well see them being in the national championship with Clemson. This is a great team. You know, Texas A&M barely got through Vanderbilt, whereas Alabama put a hurting on their opponent in the SEC. So, 
you know, Alabama, Alabama is playing better football. Uh, you know, Alabama is the better roster. And I think Alabama wins this game 38-20. 38-20. So they cover the spread. Barely. Yeah, I think that I mean I, just, I mean Texas A and M is still an SEC football team. I'm 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 going to say they're still an SEC football team. This isn't going to be a total blowout, but th- this is this is Alabama's game. I'm sure Nick Saban is is going to have this team ready. I mean he's mad this year. I mean Alabama lost out last year. Saban feels like he should have had another national championship, and he was far from that last year. I just think Saban is just motivated. He's motivated, and I mean, he has a quarterback that he feels can can spread the ball around. He still has, you know, the the two headed monster at running back. He's got the wide receivers with Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith. Yeah, Alabama's. I mean, they're always talented, man. If I was a recruit, I wouldn't go to Alabama. I mean, I would I would go somewhere where I can change the program. I don't think I would want to go somewhere where I'm surrounded by five-star recruits everywhere on the roster, and I'm, I'm not sure whether I'm, I'm going to be able to contribute. You know how many talented recruits Saban has, has gotten over there, but they haven't even gotten on the field? I mean, it's, it's really amazing. I've always thought about this. I mean, if I was like a big-time recruit, would I go somewhere that has a tradition and you have like the entire roster filled with four and five star recruits. Would you want? I want to go somewhere where I can change the culture, where I can change the losing program. I think I would actually go there. That's just yeah. I, I just I just think Alabama is 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 fully talented. I mean they're gonna they're gonna they're putting. A, I mean they put a hurting on on Missouri. I mean Missouri's an SEC team. It's not like it's a FCS team. They're not a you know they're not a Division two team. They're an SEC team, and Alabama put a hurting on them. The only thing, the only question I have about Alabama is I don't know if Mac Jones. I mean, when you when you compare Mac Jones and you have him go against Trevor Lawrence, I mean, don't you don't you kind of kind of give the edge to Trevor Lawrence there? Absolutely. I mean, Mac Jones is probably like Greg McElroy or AJ McCarron, but those guys won, and and those guys did well. They won national championships. I just think he's not as exciting as Tua. But he's still a guy that that gets the job done and and is accurate and knows how to get the ball and, and spread it around. And I just think that we saw your freshman though. We saw your freshman. Yeah, I like the this game. kid, Bryce I mean, Young. You I want to say that on the air. No, I mean you could say it on the air. Go ahead. I mean you've you've been pumping him up a little bit, and so I want to hear your thoughts. He got a chance. He got in the game. You you saw his rocket arm. You you saw his athleticism. I mean, this kid brings something special. Well, I'm going to admit he's very raw, but he's a true freshman. They're just trying to get him into the game. I mean, this is the this is the University of Alabama football team. This is Nick Saban's football team, and they're literally dedicating time to you in an SEC game just to get you experience. That's how much they believe in you. So, this kid this kid isn't just another quarter Alabama quarterback recruit. I, I thought he was very raw, very inaccurate. I didn't think he, I didn't think he played very well. But to be honest with you, you can get him settled and you can get him used to an SEC game. I mean, this this kid's going to be a good player. And you know, just the fact that the respect that Saban is showing him right now to get him in the game as a true freshman just shows what he can be. There's another game in the SEC worth keeping an eye on. Obviously, we talked about Alabama against Texas A&M, but Number seven, Auburn Tigers are going to be playing at Georgia. 
at number four, Georgia Bulldogs. And the Bulldogs, according to Bavada, are minus seven point favorites in this game. It's going to be an interesting game, Ed, because Georgia didn't look like its old self. We know the story. I mean, Jamie Newman was supposed to be the quarterback there. He transferred from Wake Forest, and then all of a sudden he opted out before the season. Well, we saw that that Georgia had its struggles at the quarterback position. See, this is this is my speculation. I think they're going to end up using JT Daniels, and I think JT Daniels is going to win this game for them. Yeah, that, that's just what I think. I think JT Daniels was a good quarterback at a USC. Obviously, he had a bad injury, and that's why you know he lost the job at USC. But I mean, you know, you put it, you put him in Georgia, and you give him, you give him a shot. And I think, I think he's, I think he's the best guy for the job. And you know, I, I mean, Georgia, Georgia's got a really talented defense, and they've got, you know, they've got a good team around them, so they have a good roster. So I mean, all all JT Daniels has to do is 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 you know not turn the ball over. Well, he has been cleared from that knee injury that he suffered, and he is available to play on Saturday. And I looked at those Georgia quarterbacks that played, and I, I could tell you that JT Daniels will definitely be inserted into this game. He's not going to start, but he might finish this game. He might be in there by by halftime because the guy that started, Dewan Mathis, he really struggled in the first half. I mean, it's just as bad as it got. And then they inserted Stetson Bennett. He's a walk-on, a former walk-on. He took over in the second half, and Georgia offense got better. It, it definitely got rolling a little bit. But again, they played against Arkansas, and Arkansas stayed in the game all the way in the third quarter. And I just think there's one thing that really bothered me. When you're breaking in a new quarterback, why don't you run the football? I mean, Georgia has a new offensive coordinator, Todd Monken. Uh, he came over from the NFL, but he just his offense failed to impress me. Georgia has to run the football. They have Zamir White. They've got James Cook. I mean, that tradition, Georgia wants to run the football. That's what they do. And they just weren't able to do that. And if they don't do that against Auburn, they're going to be in trouble. Ed. Yeah, I mean Auburn. Auburn has a good team. I mean, this isn't this isn't going to be a runaway game for either team. I mean, Georgia. I think Georgia is the better team in this game. But the one thing that you know they're saying about Bo Nix is that he's improved. He's improved since last year, and you know he's starting to mature a bit into a sophomore. So I mean, you've got you've got a good quarterback situation at Auburn. Bo Nix, I mean, I watched the game. He still throws off his back foot a little too much. But they're running a more complex offense this year. Chad Morris came over. Uh, He's a former Arkansas head coach. He used to be an offensive coordinator at Clemson. I just think he's going to have a positive influence over Bo Nix. And I was really impressed with the receivers that Auburn has. And that's going to be the matchup. You've got... The big Seth Williams, you've got the speedster and Eli Stove, and then you've got like a track star in Anthony Schwartz, and then you have the Georgia's secondaries. Their secondary is still strong. So that's going to be the matchup. You know, I'm not a gambling man, Ed, but I'm going to take Auburn in this game. I realize that they're away, but I just think that Auburn has that experience at quarterback. This guy has been through those battles last year as a true freshman, and Bo Nix. And I just think they... I don't think Georgia is going to be able to keep up. I, I saw those Auburn receivers, and they're just... 
they're running more complex route combinations and and the guys just looked really impressive against Kentucky. I, I think this is a touchdown difference game. I mean, Georgia Georgia has a better defense than Auburn. I mean, you know, Auburn doesn't have Derrick Brown anymore. I think I think when you compare defenses, Georgia's a better defensive team, and that's, I think, why they win this game by a touchdown. Well, Auburn actually impressed me on defense against Kentucky. Obviously, Georgia is, is a different animal, but I would give the edge to Chad Morris's offensive scheme over Todd Monken. I, I just... I wasn't impressed. I think Georgia is going away from what works for them in the SEC, what gets them in those SEC championship games. Georgia has to run the football effectively against Auburn if they want to win on Saturday. Thank you for listening to another episode of Blitzcast. Take care.